Speech Sounds by Octavia Butler was published in 1983 in Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. A pandemic has swept the world, killing many and leaving the rest in shambles. The story follows Rai, a woman traveling to find her remaining family members. Instead, she finds Obsidian and begins a brief relationship with him. In this episode with Paige and Jennifer from Big Book Energy, we will discuss communication in the story, dystopias, and the prelude from Isaac Asimov. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello! I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. And today we're back again with Paige and Jennifer. How are you? Awesome. How are you guys? Good. <laughs> Oh, we're glad to hear it. We're doing pretty good. We're recording this the same day, but yeah. It's just been like 30 <laughs> minutes, guys. We're going to pretend it's a different day. <laughs> I know, Jennifer, you wanted to start with the prelude from Isaac Asimov. When I picked this story, well, one of several reasons I picked this story was because it was easily available online for free because part of... A- Asimov's magazine in which it was published was like digitized. So I was checking it out and I'm reading this introduction that was included at the beginning of the story. And I started off offended and then I got like really shocked. And then I reached the point where I saw who had written the introduction and then I was like, oh, I'm not surprised. Mm. So what's really interesting about this intro, yes, it's Isaac Asimov's magazine. But this is like a published piece, so you would think professional setting. And about half of the introduction, Asimov spends talking about how he's never met Octavia Butler, but he hopes he does, basically because people are telling him that she's like tall and he likes to look at, quote, statuesque women. (laughs) This prolific and highly successful black female science fiction author who, I mean, I can't stress enough, she's this huge figure in science fiction, has been reduced to her aesthetic appeal to Asimov in the introduction to her story, which seems to just be so, like, undermining of her authority as an author, her validity as an author, (laughs) because he's just talking about how, like, oh, I hope I get to see her someday. (laughs) And it's like, what are you doing? But this actually brings us back to a conversation that Paige and I had had previously because we did an episode on Asimov's book Foundation, which is an amazing book, but we also spent a great deal of time talking about how Asimov is a deeply problematic person outside of his writing because he is a serial sexual harasser um, and kind of the legacy that he leaves behind having been so successful and such a, a great writer. Like, I won't hesitate to say he's a great writer, and yet he seems incapable of treating women, even his peer, as someone who is deserving of respect. I read this intro and I was just like floored and and then I saw who it was and I like I wrote in my notes I was like of course it's Isaac Asimov. So yeah those are my thoughts on it. I don't know if if y'all have anything that you would like to add about this. Well I'll be honest I didn't even read the four note the first time through because I saw that it wasn't a part of the story so I was like eh you know like I don't need it for the story. Fair enough. I get kind of lazy sometimes (laughs) it happens. I just read it though. It's about what I was expecting you know. I I haven't read a lot of Isaac Asimov's work, but it was just kind of like, here's this story. Um, And he kind of points out that it was the third story by a woman in this collection at all. 
which I thought I think that's that's what he was trying to draw attention to. It's like, oh, like I I feature women, guys. Like my female right, friend right. makes me not sexist, you know? Like Yeah. <laughs> exactly. When he did describe himself as a feminist as well. Um, (laughs) Which is interesting. Yeah, as he's groping younger women at fan events, he also sees himself as a a feminist. But yeah, I also thought that was interesting. He pointed out that Oh, see, look, I have I have three women in this in this collection. So that's great. But also, you know, maybe she's a looker, you know, like, at the same time. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting, because it just brings up what female authors specifically within the science fiction genre which was just so male dominated through the second half of the 20th century although that's obviously been changing but it's it's still sometimes feels very much like a boys club it's been a very contentious genre for women entering it uh so this is just like a nice or not nice but a illustrative (laughs) introduction of that overall problem Uh, within science fiction. I think it's interesting you bring it up, too. It kind of is a good discussion to have of, like, can you still appreciate the author's works when they have such a, like, shaded past? I know there's a lot of discussions going on with, like, J.K. Rowling, and can you still, Mm. like, appreciate Harry Potter knowing that she is, like, a turf and that, you know, she is hating on trans women and just totally erasing them and, like, invalidating them. And so can you still appreciate Harry Potter? And I know John always brings up an example as well. Sherman Alexie. So with Sherman Alexie, mm. um, he wrote a lot about himself. A very his... prolific Native American writer. He wrote a lot about his own, like, spirituality as a Native American man living in a world that's not as much Native American anymore. Like, he talks a lot about the clashing of modern ideals in this, like, old, like, like Indian, like, he calls them Indian, like, stories. And he has a lot of Native American characters, and they, I think a lot of them, and especially the story I read, focused on him. And when he, like, comes out that he... Uh, is a the same way with Isaac Asimov a sexual like a uh, sexual a serial sexual assaulter like he just like kind of like and he really forces his like abuse of power on them as like a more like the most almost well known Native American writer in the United States he kind of like uses that fame against these other like younger up and coming writers and like uses like mm. like blackmails them essentially so like to me what jk rowling did i can easily separate her from her work because she's not really harry potter like she's not like she's this middle-aged woman that wrote harry potter to me but sherman alexi like is the characters in his stories to me so it's like well like i do have to look at his stories in a different light now yeah and so I'm not sure if you had uh, seen anything with that with Isaac Asimov, if he was as integral into his characters or if he was just kind of the creator for it. It's interesting that you bring up Sherman Alexie. I don't think that the same could be said of Asimov, that he really inserts himself into the narrative in that way. A lot of his male characters, which they're, in Foundation, there's one female character out of a cast of, like, dozens he didn't really write women into his works often at all. He mostly excluded them. And when he did, they were very stereotypical. And also his male characters include a lot of the kind of more sexist ideals that would have been prevalent at the time that he was writing. So mid-century. We also talked about this in our episode. Does it make a difference if someone's dead? We read a lot of classics where there's various problematic things in them because the authors were writing from a certain time and place and, you know, so there may be racism or sexism in an otherwise really brilliant work. 
And, you know, if so, if an author is, like, dead and no longer producing more work, like, ca- ca- is that more, like, acceptable mentally for you? I mean, I feel like it is for me somehow for some reason. I think we also agreed that if he's dead, he's no longer hurting anyone continuously. Yeah, Which is yeah. another huge, huge factor in Asimov's case is that he's no longer able to... He's not actively right. continuing those harmful behaviors either unlike someone else who might still be alive and then it gets into the very tricky case of of do you want to support them because supporting their work may also support them like especially like monetarily so it's kind of like how do you want to vote with your dollars for people that are still alive and still benefiting from you you know consuming their work uh which is something something else to think about No, I definitely think it is a very, like, slippery slope to go down as well. Like, you know, there's nothing that Mm. can be, like, morally pure. Because, like, everyone, not everyone, but most people have done something that is not totally okay. That's kind of what I always say, that there's no such thing as innocent capitalism. So, like, you can try to vote with your dollar as much as you want. But, like, whoever ultimately, like, ends up getting a dollar is probably some, like bad person like at the end of the day like that's just how it goes like that's just li- living in a society like that's just how it's gonna go like your dollar is gonna end up going to someone who like ultimately like profits off of slave labor or something like that and it's just as a consumer you just have to be like okay knowing the fact that like you're you're enabling that essentially like everyone is like yeah 100 of the population is kind of like indirectly or directly enabling that mm. and that's just kind of the way the cookie crumbles in life like it sucks but that's just the way it goes <laughs> Makes you think of We've taken a very positive turn for this episode. (laughs) I know, so if we want to get a little bit more back on track, we can talk about Octavia Butler and her history a little bit. Yes. She won, like, several awards for her writing. I know in, like, 1984, for the speech sound, she won the Hugo Award for, like, science fiction. And she was one of the first science fiction writers to receive a MacArthur Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so she was very prolific and wrote a lot of really amazing stories and was very recognized for it it wasn't kind of the sad thing where she was never recognized for amazing writing until later in life she was recognized like even a year after it was published she got the award for it which was really nice i think considering she didn't live as long as some writers do like she died in 2006 at the age of 58 so she didn't really have Mm -hmm. as long of a life to write but she did a really amazing things while she was here Paige, was it, was it, did she not win a, a nebula until after she had passed away? Was that what it was? Octavia Butler? I don't remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't remember? Okay. So it, it I just like, she I wrote, feel... or she won a nebula, but I don't see when. I can look that up. I seem to be remembering that from somewhere, but I don't know if that's right or not. Well, I think it's interesting because I had never heard of Butler before reading this story. Before today, I mean, like, I just... For someone who is so prolific, I guess you can't learn about every writer ever, but for someone who is so prolific, I guess I just haven't heard about her. I found that interesting. Yeah, she's on my to-be-read list, but I haven't gotten to any Butler yet. I'm not a huge sci-fi person, so I like I know a couple big names in the genre, and I think it was really only in the last like year or so that I started hearing her name get thrown around a lot. And after reading this story... I'm probably going to read more of her because this was this was very good. good. So it says she won the Nebula Award in 1984 for her uh, short story, Blood Child. Mm, okay. And then she is also in, was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2010. She has a landing site of the Perseverance rover <laughs> named after her. Nice. Yeah, yeah. That's how you know you made it. 
It's so cool. Yes. Yeah. So I think to get into the story a little bit, I wanted to talk about communication as the central theme. With this pandemic that has swept their world, they it says stroke-like symptoms, so it hits them as fast as a stroke does, either killing them by, by blocking off the blood flow to the brain, get a little medical on you guys, and then it can leave them without speech or without like writing, reading and writing, which is a very interesting thing to be... Um, I am in med school, so I know a little bit about, like, that. And so just the different areas of the brain it's affecting to not only, like, understand and reply to speech, but then the reading and writing as well. And so it's a very interesting virus that has swept them and caused these array of symptoms. She also makes, like, a, a distinction within it as well that, like, Rye kind of reflects on the fact that it took the one that you valued the most as if it was like sentient and like new, you know, if you valued re- being able to read the most, then that's what you lost. Yeah, like how Rai was a writer and a historian, and so she wanted yeah. to keep reading and writing. Yeah, but she just could speak instead. For Obsidian, it seemed like he missed his voice and being able to communicate mm. that way. I thought it was interesting with Obsidian, I mean, since we talked about him, that he was left-handed and she kind of, Rai said that the left-handed people were affected, like, less. So I wonder if that, like, maybe the virus or whatever, because she kind of alluded that it might have been developed by the Soviets, even though it still affected them. It was in there, so I was just like, that's a little (laughs) bit of, like, anti-communism propaganda thrown in there. But it was, uh, so I think that it might have been, like, maybe not designed for left-handed people then. It was my thought process there. I thought that was kind of just an interesting little tidbit about Obsidian. I do like how they kind of emphasize the body language and the kind of hostility that can arise from not being able to effectively communicate. And so when you say it's like anti-communism propaganda, I think it's kind of like anti-war in general. Because she's saying like, look, you guys start fighting because you don't know how to talk to each other. Like if you just could actually communicate effectively instead of throwing your guns at each other, you would be able to avoid these conflicts. No, I definitely see that, but I just think that the, the way that it was hinted that it was developed in the Soviet Union is kind of just a very, like, a glaring, like, thing of the past. Like, that just was, like, the, the enemy, like, for a long time. <laughs> this is a Cold War story. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right that the anti-war sentiment is there, as, in it, as it is in a lot of, like, um, dystopian uh, short stories slash novels. It's kind of the current thing, system is bad and leads to this, is kind of the, like message maybe the parable i guess you would say they don't just get upset at the miscommunication they get upset at actively being able to communicate because that's kind of like what she says like if she had been able to talk like if she had talked the other people would have been very upset with her because of her just talking like they would have been like jealous or something i think is kind of what it hinted at well she kind of had her own Mm. flash of jealousy where whenever he could read and write she got almost wanted to kill him she was so upset that it was lost from her and that he had it yeah. still. But she got over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that would have been a bad start to their day. Yeah. Since they can't understand each other, like their default mode is to fight about it. Like violence is the default answer when you can't understand someone else. And so I'm like, is that some sort of like social commentary? Is that like a commentary just on human nature in general? That like... it's like no one in the story is like taking time to actually go slowly and try and earnestly communicate with someone which like body language is actually a huge percentage of how we communicate with other people in general so you know if if we've lost the ability to 
communicate through our traditional means, which in the story has been three years, how has like more sign language not developed? You know, like, because no one's, everyone apparently is too impatient or frustrated to be able to do that. And I'm like, why is violence the answer? I don't know. I Like my first thought would be, okay, well, I need to slow down and like try something else. And if that doesn't work, I'll try a different means of talking to them. But everyone in the story is depicted as having such a short fuse, like so little patience that they're not able to communicate with one another. And then it just devolves into beating each other up. On the societal scale, I can see everything just devolving into chaos if we couldn't talk to each other. So it's like, as much as I'd like to think that it wouldn't be that way, it probably would be that way. I definitely do see the social commentary part there as well, but I I kind of took that as like a side effect of the uh, whatever it was that affected them, the pandemic Mm. or whatever. It kind of made them just more violent in general was kind of what I uh, read through the story. Which it did point that out. Um, Did it? Yes. Octavia Butler put in there that it kind of had made them less intelligent like it kind of had made them i think Mm. she said slow but it kind of had made their brains devolve a little bit to where not only did they lose like the speech and writing or reading but they also lost kind of that patience so maybe this is like more of a like primal like human that was kind of what butler was saying was she was they were devolving like you said into more primal peoples and that is where the fight or flight really kicks in and they really just revolve more to fight i guess that's actually the way that i read it because the the way that i first got into it so my degree is in anthropology so i did a lot of studying for like primate behavior so there was a whole lot of Mm. like posturing and stuff like that in the very beginning uh just like display behavior of aggression so it made me think that society as a whole has actually devolved to the point of being comparable and she even mentioned somebody running around like a chimpanzee later on in the story so that just sort of reinforced to me that whatever that disease had affected in their brains that they had devolved as a whole to the point of being sort of more primal in state um and that i guess the point there would be that what makes us human is communication as opposed to uh yeah chimpanzees form complex societies they have aggressive behavior they fight they have wars they you know they're very complex creatures but the difference between us and them is communication mostly and that was sort of the way that i i read it she also mentions describing children in that way as well like as beast-like because they in particular don't have the benefit of like previous years of being able to speak and read and write and now they have no one to teach them how to be human so they're just like beasts and then so she kind of like writes off children like in the middle point of this story um obviously not at the end because she finds kids that can speak and that completely changes her whole outlook on life at that point but i found that odd oh yeah (laughs) it's really interesting too how when she finds those children they she kind of says at first it seems like they're older but then she says toddlers Mm. and that if they were born Mm. like under those three years since it started perhaps it doesn't affect them as much and so i think that was an interesting way to like kind of point out that maybe that mom could still speak but the reading and writing might not happen yeah i'm with that uh but i'd like to go back to just right before the fact that she found the kids it's kind of (gasps) 
felt like a tragedy to me, like one of the, like the Greek tragedy. Like everyone was on, there was just bodies on the ground, one survivor, and it kind of even with the kids appearing, kind of still has that final output of a Greek tragedy where like someone still is alive to go on and tell the story of the tragedy. I do like how you pointed out the Greek tragedy. It is interesting to see like playing on those themes of ye olden times mm. of the, like, everyone dying. And just when you think everything's good, like she's like, okay, I don't need to find the rest of my family and maybe be like saddened that they aren't still here. I have him now. And oh, it just wrecked you. It happens so fast. So fast. It's like, she's like, yay. And it usually does in short stories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is why I prefer novels. but like she's not alone and then she's alone again it's like such an emotional roller coaster like yeah alone not alone just a roller coaster and the fact that she's gonna take back obsidian and then this like children's mother to bury next to her own husband and children i'm like Mm. oh it just makes you so sad yeah that was rough and she also kind of lost that protection when she lost him because he kind of was described as being this like bigger, like mm-hmm. burly dude. And that was, you know, attractive and that was a little bit younger than her. And that the man who lived across the street from her was kind of being a creep. Yeah. She's pl- still planning on going back there, but now with two children. So I'm just not sure how she's going to like go forward and still take care of them and kind of protect them when she's lost that protective figure yeah the ending was very hopeful but it was not very legit logically like sound because she is just this frail like little woman and she even says that like the men are more like more violent and more like mistrustful i guess i don't know like just harder to interact with a lot of the time she said it like affects men more Mm -hmm. yeah it killed them more and also just like really ripped everything from them which could kind of be a little insight to maybe men are a little bit more primal than women and so since women are a little bit more evolved they don't get it as much which is an interesting little thought there that is interesting i feel like uh butler is so precise with her writing though like i wouldn't be surprised if that is some kind of commentary on like men in general that like it affected them more and impaired them more like more of them had like mental difficulties afterwards and yeah she probably is saying something about men and then we have the introduction by Isaac Asimov in front of it she's saying something about Asimov (laughs) (laughs) I just think with a lot of short stories being in a shorter format writers or I guess authors in general are so specific with their word choices yes you can't not read into it which is what we found with a lot of different writings is that it usually means something when they choose to say something or not say something as well yeah yeah and I mean this one is pretty short it's like 12 pages Mm. so quite a bit shorter we've done we've done a lot of short ones (laughs) quite a bit shorter than the last one we did with yes. <laughs> Tragic Life Story. Paige. Couldn't stick to the brief. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm the person that goes into the bookstore and specifically looks for series that have at least six books out. So leaving oh, wow. me to pick a short story was <laughs> perhaps not was the best task. decision. <laughs> so did you want to talk a little bit more about dystopias at all, John? Or did you kind of... I think we've kind of addressed the dystopian mm-hmm. features. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we need to, like, go through everything that makes it dystopia. I think it's pretty easy to tell. <laughs> we uh, live in maybe, one... Maybe... 
<laughs> oh yeah, I was gonna say this seemed a little too close to comfort. Yes, when I said, a pandemic. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that when I was choosing it. Um, I was like, wow, okay, this actually is kind of traumatic. Reading this now, because <laughs> like when I read the synopsis for it, I was just like, oh okay, like you know, people can't communicate with each other. What does that look like? You know, like it's a great like science fiction hypothetical what if, you know, uh, and then I started reading it more and I was like, oh, it's a pandemic that ravaged the globe. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Oops. And people are fighting all the time because of inequality. Wow. Too close. Like, (laughs) but also there's a lot with sci-fi and like these dystopias in general, but specifically sci-fi where they get so many things right about how the world is now. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting thing where they can really just pick up on like trends and how things are going to go. It's such a forward thinking genre. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it just means that there's a good probability that someone will have created a hypothetical situation that actually ends up coming to be. That's a horrifying thought. Yeah, actually, now that I say that, um, killer robots, you know, uh, right? <laughs> apocalyptic situations, that's not great, so. I'm just waiting for my Google, like, home to get mad at me, because I yell at her all the time. <laughs> yeah. Have to, like, always say thank you to them, be nice, be to nice our over- right? robot overlords, you know? Yeah. Yep. So this story kind of makes me think of the Maze Runner series, though, with mm. the uh, virus that kind of ravages the globe. Because in that, there's the same sort of, like, virus caused by, I don't know, some sun flare stuff. It gets real involved. But <laughs> the virus also does the same thing to people where it makes them really violent and, yeah. like, less of humans. But in this book, they're a lot more human-like than they are in the movies I saw. So it's a really good read. It's, it kind of seems like the beginning to, like, the zombie trope we saw a few years back where, yeah. like, everyone becomes a zombie and it's like cool <laughs> it, but it does feel like that little wiggle room between zombies slash not so like the same kind of breed of monsters from i am legend the book not the movie the book the movie gets a little more like zombie-esque the book is more vampire-esque even and they're kind of more civilized and in that the book is kind of really interesting because it does the whole frankenstein's monster thing but with the uh, main character of i am legend where he uh, is going around killing all these monsters and the monsters are scared of him Hmm. Like, the things that he, like, hunts and kills and that also hunt him because he's killing so many of them. They fear him. Interesting. I did not realize the movie was such a different interpretation. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic yeah. book, but the movie goes way off from it. Uh, loosely interpreted from the book. <laughs> Inspired by. Inspired by. Curious who writes that one. Yeah, I wonder if they've written anything else since then. Richard Matheson? Don't know him. Nope, that's the film. Uh, no, that's the novel. Novel by the same oh name by gosh. Richard Matheson. Sorry, I got confused. But so I think that this is just kind of a uh, interesting thing that pops up in a lot of literature is you get inspired by other pieces of literature or maybe you would call it copying but so they've taken these monsters and such pandemic idea and kind of done the same thing with i am legend and also with the mage runner series mm-hmm. so it's a thing you see in a lot where there's a lot of similarities yeah and like with this being written back in the 80s yeah it's very possible this influenced those i yeah. would definitely say it has yeah. yeah especially with butler being as prolific as she was yeah the only other thought that i had was kind of about Basically how, like, the children really, like, symbolize hope in this story. 
because you have that weird moment where she's like, oh, the children are beasts and my kids are dead and everything's terrible, you know? <laughs> and then she, she, which they are, I agree, things are terrible. Um, but <laughs> well, I thought you meant children are beasts. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, children are beasts. Yeah. Like, can't, you can't teach them to do anything. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, like, you know, yeah, her situation is terrible, but she also, I think probably because she lost her kids, children in general have really been kind of associated with a lot of negative emotions and life events that she's experienced whereas typically like kind of they are like this cliche symbol of hope the symbol of tomorrow children are the future that sort of thing and she's lost that and at the end when she finds these kids who can speak it's like the symbol itself is like rehabilitated back into one of hope rather than one of kind of like despair and depression so I thought that was really interesting because it also doesn't really challenge the prevailing stereotypical gender roles either, that she as a woman is going to be taking care of and nurturing the kids and like the symbol of hope in general. So it's like, while Butler is doing a lot of really interesting things, she's not really subverting that as much either at the same time. Yeah, I actually didn't see him as a symbol, but I like that. I like interpretation of a symbol of the children. I guess I, I don't know if I just write it a little bit more literal and I was like, oh good, she's going to take care of these kids who are left. Yeah. <laughs> like my motherly instincts coming out. But I think it was a really good symbol that she did use. Yeah. Overall, I, re- I just really liked this story. It was good. Her writing is really good. So. It is a fantastic story. Yeah. 10 and 10. All right. Well, listeners, again, we could talk this to the bone. Just talk about every little thing in it. But we'll leave you... Some dissection to do. <laughs> you can dissect it yourself. Please reach out to us with any thoughts you have. And if Paige and Jennifer, you want to plug your podcast again? Yes. Um, so we do have uh, social media accounts and a website that you can check out. We have a Twitter and an Instagram, both of them at big underscore book underscore energy. And we have a link in our bio on our social media pages. So if you want to check out all of our relevant links, or you can visit bigbookenergy.com, which has all of those links as well. So you'll easily be able to find us if you want to take a look. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun, and we really enjoyed your guys' picks. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yay, look at us. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us and subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well.